Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our June 2017 issue. This month, we feature several articles from our Focus on Suicide special section. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Worldwide, suicidal behavior is an important cause of death and disability. One modifiable key risk factor is substance abuse. However, the extent to which specific categories of acute substance use are warning signs for suicide attempts is unknown. The goals of this study, which was funded by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, were to quantify the near-term effects of recent sole use and co-use of substances on medically attended suicide attempts. Using a case crossover methodology suited for estimating short-term risk, the study compared substance use within the 24 hours prior to a suicide attempt or the case day to the control day, the matched 24 hours prior to the case day. The authors recruited recent suicide attempters from a level 1 trauma hospital. Substances included alcohol, cannabis, central nervous system or CNS depressants such as sedatives, anxiolytics, and opioids, and CNS stimulants such as amphetamines and cocaine. The authors found that the use of alcohol alone increased the risk for attempt by about four times, and that the use of CNS depressants alone increased this risk by about three times. Moreover, Combined use of both alcohol and CNS depressants was associated with an increased risk for the suicide attempt by almost nine times. The recent use of cannabis or CNS stimulants did not increase the imminent risk when taking into account other substance use. The authors conclude that these results should be considered when making informed clinical decisions regarding the potential for imminent suicide risk. Major depressive disorder is a prevalent and often lifelong condition that is associated with significant reductions in psychosocial function and human capital. A modifiable deficiency in the treatment and management of adults with major depressive disorder is treatment selection and sequencing that are discordant with evidence-based guidelines. The use of evidence-based guidelines has been demonstrated to increase the precision, consistency, appropriateness, therapeutic outcomes, and cost-effectiveness of care. The Florida Best Practice Psychotherapeutic Medication Guidelines, presented in this government-funded article, which is our CME offering for this month, are the most up-to-date guidelines, authored by multiple stakeholders. Participants included, but were not limited to, advocacy members, policy experts, health economists, clinicians, and academics. These guidelines attempt to be pragmatic and provide a holistic approach to patients with equal attention given to the therapeutic efficacy of treatment as well as the overall health of the patient. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the June table of contents at psychiatrist.com. While a relationship between aggression and substance misuse has been recognized for years, little is known about the nature of this association. 
In the present study, sponsored in part by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers examined data from a large community-based sample to find out the frequency of substance misuse in highly aggressive people diagnosed with intermittent explosive disorder. They studied people with current intermittent explosive disorder and current substance use disorders and found that the frequency of substance use disorder was four times higher in people who had intermittent explosive disorder than in those who did not. They also found that intermittent explosive disorder begins before substance use disorder in more than 90% of cases. This relationship was true for alcohol, tobacco, and cannabis use. Overall, the data strongly point to the possibility that people with recurrent impulsive-aggressive behavior are at high risk for substance misuse and that effective treatment of these behaviors may prevent or delay the development of substance misuse in young people. Suicidal thinking, suicide attempts, and death by suicide remain critical global public health concerns, yet suicidal ideation and behavior remain under-recognized and under-treated. Lack of consensus on several issues has hampered progress in the field. The International Society for CNS Clinical Trials and Methodology sponsored an open consensus meeting to develop recommendations to address these issues. Attendees represented stakeholders from academia, industry, regulatory authorities, the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute for Mental Health, and patient advocacy organizations such as the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Five working groups were formed to review the literature and discuss relevant issues prior to crafting consensus statements. Recommendations included ensuring that clear standards be applied to existing assessments to evaluate the need for new ones, that suicidal ideation and or behavior be used as the primary endpoint in treatment studies, that common data collection elements be implemented to ensure comparability across studies, and that further work be done to address public health gaps, especially those related to stigma and cross-cultural issues. There was broad agreement that the primary barrier to advancement of the field and development of new treatments remains the lack of a universally accepted standardized nomenclature and classification system for suicidal ideation and behavior. The authors of this consensus statement emphasize that achieving alignment on definitions and classification of suicide-related phenomena is critical to improving their assessment, the design of clinical trials for new treatments, and more effective public health interventions. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Prolactin, a hormone that is known for inducing milk production, has been tied to endometrial cancer. In this government-funded study, researchers from Canada reviewed a 24-year period for nearly 60,000 women newly taking antipsychotics. They compared the risk of endometrial cancer between women who used antipsychotic medications that are known to raise prolactin levels and women using antipsychotics that do not affect prolactin. After controlling for many parameters, the authors found no association between the use of prolactin-elevating antipsychotics and endometrial cancer. Their findings give reassurance to users of antipsychotics that may raise prolactin levels as well as to the physicians who prescribe them.
It remains unclear whether contributing factors for suicide attempts differ between children and adolescents. In addition, little is known about adulthood mental health outcomes of child and adolescent suicide attempters in the general population. To investigate these issues, the authors of this article examined data from the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, a large U.S. adult general population sample. The survey showed that about 0.3% of participants attempted suicide during childhood, before the age of 13 years, and 1.2% attempted suicide during adolescence, from the ages of 13 through 17 years. Suicide attempts during childhood were more strongly related to childhood maltreatment, while suicide attempts during adolescence were more strongly associated with major depressive episodes. Compared to adolescent attempters, child attempters presented an increased risk for multiple suicide attempts. Several psychiatric disorders such as mania, hypomania, and panic disorder, and poor social functioning during adulthood. These results suggest that suicide attempts in children and adolescents differ substantially in terms of contributing factors and mental health outcomes in adult life. The authors emphasize that preventing childhood maltreatment and providing early intervention for psychiatric disorders may have broad benefits to reduce not only the suffering of these children and adolescents, but also the burden of suicide. In theory, pharmacogenomics can improve clinical outcomes by guiding antidepressant selection and dosing. It has also become scalable and available to the general public. Rosenblatt and colleagues recently conducted a systematic review of the literature to determine the impact of pharmacogenomic testing on clinical outcomes in major depressive disorder and to assess its cost-effectiveness. The authors identified two open-label, eight-week prospective studies. Compared to the groups receiving unguided treatment, both studies reported overall greater improvement in symptom severity in the groups receiving psychiatric care that was guided by combinatorial pharmacogenomic testing, or GeneSight. One industry-sponsored 10-week randomized controlled trial reported a trend for improved outcomes for the GeneSight-guided group, but the trend did not reach significance. Another industry-sponsored trial reported a 2.5-fold increase in remission rates in the CNS dose-guided group. A naturalistic, unblinded, industry-sponsored study showed that 77% of participants had clinical improvement when pharmacogenomic testing guided prescribing. Finally, a cost-effectiveness study concluded that single-gene testing was not cost-effective. However, another study reported that combinatorial pharmacogenomic testing is cost-effective. The authors conclude that a limited number of studies have shown promise, but that the ability of pharmacogenomics to improve remission and response rates remains theoretical rather than evidence-based. In this study, the authors analyzed a nationally representative survey of U.S. adults to explore the reasons why individuals with serious suicidal thoughts do not receive mental health treatment. Three out of four adults who reported having serious suicidal thoughts in the past year did not feel the need for mental health treatment. Of those who did report the need for treatment, financial barrier was the most commonly reported reason for not receiving it, followed by logistical reasons such as not knowing where to go. 
The authors recommend that improving treatment receipt for this vulnerable population will require a multi-dimensional approach that includes facilitating problem recognition and addressing financial barriers. With the growing interest in complementary and integrative medicine, a work group for the American Psychiatric Association Council on Research conducted an extensive and updated review on the evidence for methionine, or SAMI, in neuropsychiatric disorders and comorbid medical conditions. A wide range of studies was included in this review in order to capture information that would be of interest to psychiatrists in clinical practice. This review of SAMI in the treatment of major depressive disorder found promising evidence of efficacy and safety to support its use as a monotherapy and as an augmentation for other antidepressants. Additionally, preliminary evidence suggests that SAMI may improve symptoms in certain neurocognitive, substance use, and psychotic disorders and in comorbid medical conditions. The authors conclude that SAMI holds promise as a treatment for a number of neuropsychiatric conditions. However, the body of evidence needs additional research. Exploration of the full range of potential benefits of SAMI through controlled clinical studies is much needed and advised. Tragically, suicide is a leading cause of death among young adults. This group attempts suicide at higher rates compared to other age groups, which underscores the need to identify warning signs that may enhance risk detection and intervention opportunity. Although sleep problems, such as insomnia, have been identified as a risk factor for suicidal behaviors, most studies rely on self-reported versus objective assessments of sleep. The authors of this study, which was sponsored by the National Institutes of Health and a private foundation, examined objectively measured sleep patterns using actigraphy, a watch-like device, as a predictor of suicidal ideation at 7- and 21-day follow-ups. From a pool of 5,000 undergraduates who were screened for a history of suicide attempts or recent suicidal thought, 50 students who were at high risk for suicide were evaluated. Although multiple actigraphy indices were analyzed, only sleep variability, the day-to-day variation in the time an individual fell asleep and awoke, emerged as a predictor of increased suicidal ideation. This finding mirrored self-reported sleep assessments, showing that greater instances of insomnia and nightmares were associated with increases in suicidal ideation over a brief period. These results were observed even after accounting for depression and suicidal symptom severity at the beginning of the study. Day-to-day fluctuations in mood were identified as one potential explanatory factor in the relationship between sleep disturbances and suicide risk. This report is the first to show that sleep disturbances may be a warning sign of suicidal behaviors among young adults, and it highlights the potential use of poor sleep as a proposed biomarker and an intervention target for suicide prevention. Ketamine is a mixture of R and S in antiomers, and animal data suggests potential advantages for R-ketamine over S-ketamine. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andretti discusses the literature on the antidepressant properties of S-ketamine. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. We are pleased to announce the upcoming launch of JCP Weekly. 
Beginning in July, new articles will be published at our website, psychiatrist.com, every week. Our new offering will put at your fingertips a continual flow of evidence-based information to guide your daily practice. In fact, did you know that in the first quarter of this year, two CME articles, three review articles, and 18 original research articles were available only on our website? We hope you will visit Psychiatrist.com to take advantage of all it has to offer. Be sure to sign up at Psychiatrist.com to receive e-alert notifications when new articles are posted. In conjunction with our new weekly offering, JCP will become a bi-monthly journal beginning with the July-August issue. But we'll still be releasing new podcast episodes each month to keep you up to date on the latest research and reviews. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the June issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com or just enter June into the keyword search. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.